Welcome to the Arrive Podcast, the U.S. Immigration Law Podcast for Canadians. I am Jeremy Richards, and I'm here with my business partner and fellow immigration attorney, Christine Jerusik. Together, we are Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law, practicing U.S. immigration law from our offices in Buffalo, New York, and Toronto, Ontario. And we help Canadians to work and live in the United States. If you haven't already, please follow and like us on your podcast app. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, uh, Richards and Jerusik Immigration Law. And follow us and like us on, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram uh, for regular updates on U.S. immigration law uh, that we have created just for Canadians. Uh, in addition, on our website, there is a resources tab where you can subscribe to a weekly newsletter where you will receive all our recent updates and posts about U.S. immigration law as well. In today's episode, we are going to uh, go over a few things. First, we're going to hit some uh, recent updates in U.S. immigration. Then we're going to talk about some some case successes that we've had recently. Um, then we're going to go over some frequently asked questions that, that we receive. And then we'll get to some uh, submitted questions, listener-submitted questions as well. So updates... I don't think there, there, there aren't that many updates to go over um, that have happened since the last time we talked. Um, the, I guess the biggest one would be the H1B, H-1B visa lottery is now open. And that opened March 1st, so it's been open for a week now. And it's going to go until the 17th, and it closes at noon Eastern time on the 17th. So this is an important window. For those individuals who are looking for an H-1B visa, maybe changing from TN to H-1B or another status to H-1B, or maybe your profession doesn't qualify for a TN and uh, maybe your managerial level or whatever it might be, or your profession isn't listed on under the USMCA for a TN profession, then this is your time to go after that H-1B visa. Uh, it doesn't matter when you go into the lottery. So you could have entered the lottery on day one. Uh, or you can enter it at 11.59 on the 17th. It doesn't matter. Everyone who enters has an equal chance at winning the lottery. Uh, so or based on past numbers of the lottery, they issued all of those. Uh, I th- last year was around a 15% chance to get into the lottery. That's low. Pretty low. Mm-hmm. So in the, the odds of getting into the lottery depend on how many people enter it's looking like this year the numbers with the hiring difficulties that u.s employers are having right now it could increase but at the same time if employers aren't as busy as they thought they would be it looks like some businesses have declined over over since covid a lot of these like stimulus t- funds business. and yeah, IT businesses are suffering. I've uh, seen layoffs with you know Twitter, Facebook, yeah. these the tech sector. So and those are some of the biggest sponsors for visas. So historically, yeah, they have been. So we'll see. It you know maybe some other employers jump in the ring right because they can't find talent um, and and snatch up some of those numbers. Uh, so and, we and will, we it's be, yet to be determined how, what the odds are. Probably, uh, my guess is like somewhere in the 20% range. 
Yeah, that sounds probably about right. But we should be clear because I get I get lots of calls and people, um, you know, wonder about this is, you know, who are they competing against for lottery numbers? And you're literally competing against anybody from around the world in any profession that's applying for this. The entire world. <laughs> so, you know, there's no specific amount of visas set aside for certain professions. Or um, certain citizenship. Or right? certain citizenships, right. You're, there's... It's not specific to that. So this is a wide open lottery for all professions um, that qualify and people from all over the world that qualify. Yeah, and uh, I'm gonna pull it up now just because we're talking about it um, and and people might wanna know the exact numbers. Uh, I posted it, and this is a plug back to our website. I posted it on our website. Uh, There was an update on there and uh, that's specific to the opening of the lottery. But it gives some of the the numbers uh, around the H-1B lottery submission. So according to the past numbers, there were 483,927 registrants for the H-1B lottery last year. For the the available 65,000 bachelor's level cap and 20,000 master's cap. So... 400, roughly 485,000 people entered the lottery for 85,000 spots. So that gives you a, an idea of, of what it was. So odds aren't high. 13%. Yeah, odds, odds are not high. Um, and it goes up slightly if you're masters uh, to 16%. So, uh, and the reason is, is because if you have a master's, there's an additional allotted number for masters uh, graduates who, who received their education in the United States. So, that lottery is now open. If you need an H-1B visa, now's your time to try. Uh, so best of luck to you that uh, are entering into the H-1B visa lottery. No other updates uh, of note? Oh, there is one. There There's is one? The, yeah, the Child Status Protection Act. Oh, yes. Uh, point. They, um, USCIS has changed the dates that they're gonna, going to acknowledge um, children uh, and prevent being prevented from aging out of the um, green card process. And they used to say that they needed to meet the age of 21 by the final action date on the visa bulletin. Um, and this is just a bit of technical information. And they changed that to um, not from the final action date, but from a earlier date or, or a, a more recent date, which would be the um, filing date. So that filing date is always a little bit uh, ahead of the final action date. So that means that's going to prevent certain children from aging out of the process uh, when they hit 21 because the, that clock will stop at the final action date and they won't continue ticking. Um, so that's good news. Yeah, and aging out, for those that don't know what that means, for U.S. immigration purposes, once, you, once a child hits 21, they age out. In other words, they're no longer considered a dependent or a beneficiary of their parents. So they can't obtain uh, certain immigration benefits as a child of, of right, as a dependent. Their, yeah. As a dependent. So this would be if it's a U.S. permanent resident or a U.S. citizen sponsoring their child. And it makes a big difference uh, if you are considered uh, a child or an adult child. Or, I mean, it could even be, it could be more removed than that. So if you sponsored your brother and sister about 20, or brother or sister about 20 years ago, and, uh, you know, they maybe had a two-year-old at the time, guess what? That kid's 
aged out of the process um, before the visa was available for them, and that means the whole family would not be able to move together to the United States. Uh, you know, I think we need to note that USCIS recognizes at age 21 that these kids are no longer kids, and they are, you know, individual adults that need separate um, sponsorship um, because they have their own families and their own lives in their home country. Yeah, and it's, and that's how the whole priority system is set up, right? Uh, they give priority to those that they see as part of, I would say, the nuclear family, right? Mother, father, uh, spouses, spouses, children. Yeah. But it, and it doesn't even it doesn't even go to um, siblings as it does. So there's preference given to your parents if you're a U.S. citizen, or your children or your spouse. Those are the ones that have the preference and that are actually exempt from from a lot of these. Um, limitations, limitations yeah, and, as and far numbers. as immigrant visa issuance, um, and then once you get outside of those relationships, that's where you get into longer wait times, less visas being available, and then other issues that can come. Country-specific wait times and things like that. Yeah. All right. So n- now we'd like to move in. Let's let's talk about some things we've seen happening recently with some of the cases that uh, that we've been handling. So we've, we're a part of an Immigration Lawyers Association, and we, we get updates on a regular basis on what's going on out there with other attorneys. Um, and frankly, sometimes what we hear just reinforces uh, what we know. Sometimes it, we learn something from it. Um, and based on a lot of chatter and things that have been going on out there with e-visa processing specifically i think we've been giving ourselves a a pat on the back uh, because of some of the results we're getting with e-visa processing specifically in toronto Um, we haven't seen this but uh, other practitioners uh, in the area or i guess throughout the country have been expressing uh, concern concern with the way they're processing e-visas right and some they, what they would refer to as weird denials or refusals. Um, and we listened in on some of these, and frankly, I think the ones that were discussed were actually warranted. Um, yeah, but like we haven't experienced the same. Um, and actually, the day that this uh, came out, this discussion, we had received three approvals uh, of e-visas that, through the tor- consulate in Toronto. And if you're doing an e-visa, that's who issues the e-visa registration and the initial e-visa if you're canadian it has to be done through toronto so we had three approvals in the same day Uh, one of them was an e1 so e1 is for a treaty trader somebody dealing with uh, the trade of goods or services with the united states and this individual specifically is in in the horse industry specifically with saddlery and um working with uh, leather goods for horses, as well as some unique things that this individual has created and patented uh, that are used uh, in the horse industry. Uh, That was approved. Um, And then there were two E2 visas approved on the same day too. One of them was for- uh, For a purchase of um, an interest in a hotel, um, more than one hotel actually, and two separate hotels. Um, it wasn't a straightforward case. There were complications. The, the you know the the investment source was complicated. The 
um, you know, the structure of the arrangement and the deal was complicated, um, but we were able to lay it out so the officer understood that it, even though it was complicated, it qualified and we got a successful result with that one. Um, similarly, we had another E2 approval. This one was for an online business for the sale of office furniture. Um, and there was some warehousing involved in that as well. Uh, that one was a little more straightforward, did have some complications with respect to it, but both of them were um, successfully approved same day as the interview. And with respect to the e-visas, so E2 visa is an investor visa, and a hotel would be probably one of the most common uh, things that people, well, uh, businesses were, that And those two purchase. were very different because all three of them were different. The E1 was for someone who... Um, had significant trade with the United States. The hotel business was for someone who purchased an existing business or a part of an existing business, and that was his investment. And then the final E2, um, with the officer, was starting their own very own business from scratch. Yep. So they were all very different approvals. Um, yeah, and the E1, and when we we're talking numbers, people often think, oh, do I have to invest a million dollars to get this? No. This E1 with with the trade here, the service that this individual is providing, my off the top of my head, I'm going to say it's it's less than a hundred thousand dollars in business a year, so not a lot of business, but there is no requirement that it has to meet a certain threshold in order to qualify for an E1. Uh, what was the investment on the hotel? Do you remember how about how much was the investment there? Um, I think the purchase price was going to be close to a million, but their investment amount was, uh, I think, right around 100000 So, and if you look at the regs and the and you read about e-visas, they say 100000 or more. That's the number that they yeah. give, which isn't like concrete. It can be less. Um, so that was towards the lower end of an investment that we see, 100000 And then the office space, the, and that was existing, so you can buy an existing business already operating, already has employees. Um, yeah, that was the hotel had existing. Yeah. They already had And then the office uh, furniture store. Start from scratch. I want to say it was around maybe $120,000. So both on the All lower in. end that we see of investment amount. Mm -hmm. um, so people get caught up with the e-visa wondering whether, uh, wondering whether or not their investment amount is is sufficient enough, right? Are, are they putting enough money into this uh, investment in the United States to qualify? Well, depending on what type of visa you or what type of business you're either starting or buying, again, it can be a new or existing, the amount you invest can change substantially. If you're opening a, a buying, I use the shopping mall. That's probably the biggest one that I've dealt with. It was a multi-million dollar shopping complex that was purchased. Well, that clearly meets the substantial requirement <laughs> yeah. right there. Um, but all the way down to, and I think uh, the the smallest investment amount I've seen was actually here in the Buffalo area. It was uh, an individual who purchased, uh, it was like a hockey training facility. And it was, and it was around, it was under 30,000. Uh, so oh, wow, that's low. yeah, you can get pretty low. You have to be able to justify and explain how that investment is going to lead the creation of jobs for us workers and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of latitude given for E visas, both the E one and E two that I don't think a lot of people realize. And it's in my opinion, one, not the E two, but the E one is probably one of the most underutilized visas. And a lot of people don't understand that they, they could qualify for it. 
We actually just retained an individual who'd been working with another law firm in the area who had been coming on a TN visa. And that law firm said, oh, we can't help you anymore. You're done. This individual happened to be a consultant, right, which can be a complicated situation. So they turned them away and then they found us. And then after a brief conversation, I determined this individual qualifies for an E1. And we're able to move forward with the E1 with this individual. So it, it's often overlooked. That other local law firm didn't even think that the E1 would apply, when in fact it does. And actually, the E1 is a better fit because the TN is client or employer specific, where an E1, you can advise any of your clients in the US. You don't have to keep getting a TN for each client. You just have an E1 and it allows you to consult with any of your clients in the US. So, uh, those, those visa options, the E1 and E2 are, are, are great visa options for doing business in the U.S. We also had a, when we get questions about this, this is probably one of the emailed questions we get most frequently or even over the phone is, can I go from a TN to a green card? Can I go, I'm on a TN, but I can't get a green card. That's usually what people say. I know that since I'm on a TN visa, I can't get a green card. And we have to correct that all the time that in fact yes you can go from a TN visa to a green card and we help individuals do this on a regular basis and we in fact just had one approved this week where the individual came as a management consultant again one of the more complicated TN visa categories had been on a TN as a management consultant for multiple years actually we were able to get an extension which isn't isn't easy a lot of the time to get an extension of that. And then go to green card through the PERM process. Uh, that's where you have to do a test of the labor market, see if any US workers are out there to take the position. And this individual was able to go directly from TN visa to green card and is now a US permanent resident. Another TN success story um, for an individual who'd been denied uh, three times at were the, all three denials at a port of entry? They were. They were all at a port of entry, and this individual had presented multiple versions of certain paperwork um, to the border officer, and he was denied for several reasons. Um, once I talked to him, I got a good understanding of his situation, and we were able to successfully apply through USCIS, which is through the mail with the immigration authority here in the United States, and overcome those three um, three past denials that he'd received at the at the port of entry and now he is here in the United States with his lovely wife and starting his new position this week amazing so just because you've been denied doesn't mean it's the end of the road depending on the situation we mm -hmm. might be able to help you um, and we had another one this week too where it was after another denial this one was actually one of the more complicated border denials I've seen this individual was accused of having immigrant, immigrant intent, uh, working on authorized in the U.S., studying unauthorized in the U.S., and had very limited ties to Canada. We were able to help them overcome all of those issues, return to a port of entry. We didn't even have to go to USCIS on this one. We were able to go right back to the port nice. of entry and, and get approved, even despite all of these things that were uh, against them. So... Uh, some good things we've we've seen come down uh, recently. If you are a medical resident performing a residency in the United States 
and we see this with Canadian medical residents. They, they come here to the United States, they perform their medical residency, and they do so. Typically, it happens on either an H-1B visa or a J-1 visa. Uh, an H-1B visa doesn't have any strings attached, so to speak. So if you come and you're a foreign resident, uh, and you use an H-1B visa, then it's a pretty straightforward process to go from that H-1B to a green card. Whereas if you come into the United States and you do a foreign residency on a J-1 visa, a two-year foreign residency requirement attaches to that residency. Meaning, before you can move to a green card, you have to complete two-year residency in your home country before coming back right, to the United States. They want you to States. take your skills back to your home country and use them there for the benefit of your home country for a period of two years. And it's an obligation that's attached through this program through the U.S. Department of State and the countries that have entered into that J-1 visa exchange program. Right, and when you get that, there's a designation right on your visa, so you're aware of what the requirement is. When you're done, you're supposed to go back home and use those skills. Yeah, it says two-year foreign residency requirement. It's yeah. sub it says subject to. Yeah, and then it has the section of the law, which means yeah. go back home for two years. And I and we receive questions about this as because Canadians aren't subject as other individuals would be. Um, well, there's a little because they have some loopholes that are available due to geography. And typically, a J-1 visa holder can't even get an H-1B visa, whereas if you're Canadian and you were on a J-1, you can still get an H-1B. Um, so that's one of the loopholes. But one of the other loopholes is. A Canadian who's living in Canada, for example, let's say you're living in Fort Erie and you're working in Buffalo and you return home every night after work and you just simply come to work, but you maintain your, your residence in Canada. Guess what? That counts as foreign residence. And if you do that for two years, you'll meet your two-year foreign residency requirement and then you can apply for a green card. Uh, so the other question that arises with with this is does your time spent abroad at your foreign residence can it be consecutive or cumulative in other words do you have to stay out for two years in a row without no breaks in that or can you spend some time in canada and in the u.s as long as that adds up to two years over time and the yeah, answer to that, that i mean that would be kind of mean if it was going to be consecutive yeah. It make you stay in your home country for a full two years. Without breaking it. Yeah. You can't come no, to the U.S. No vacations. No ordering it. Yeah, you have, to, <laughs> you have to stay there. That would be way too restrictive. So it definitely is cumulative. Yes. And it's, it's laid out that it is cumulative. Um, and I spoke to an individual recently where they the, this exact situation applied to them. Um, had come on a foreign uh, J-1 uh, to do a medical residency. He completed that residency, was able to move to an H-1B visa as a Canadian, and had been sponsored for a green card. And the company's, the employer's attorney told him that he hadn't met his foreign residency requirement to go to green card because they had filed a permanent and it was approved, which means he's now able to request a green card based on that approval in U.S. permanent residency. And they were saying, no, 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 you need to spend more time in the, you, you, you haven't spent enough time in Canada. You have to spend more time in Canada before you're going to qualify because you haven't met the two-year foreign residency requirement. And that attorney told him that it was consecutive. 
and not cumulative time. So if they were looking at it consecutive time, they were correct. I think that calculation was 500 days had been spent uh, consecutively. But if you look at cumulative, back to 2018, this individual was over, had met the requirement by more than 60 days and had qualified. So it is cumulative and not consecutive when it comes to fulfilling that foreign residency requirement I had a client that, that fulfilled that requirement and demonstrated that in his green card application um, over a period of 22 years oh, wow. of traveling back to his home country and visiting that's for the short periods of that's time. That's the slow track. 22 years. Holy cow. Yeah. Um, and it, but he met the requirement and he had all the information, all the passport stamps, all the evidence that he'd spent time in his home country over that period of time for a few weeks here and there, um, sometimes a month, but he met the two-year requirement and even though that much time had passed. So it's definitely cumulative. So if, if you're subject to that foreign residency requirement or know someone who is, um, then that can be fulfilled by, by working in the United States and commuting from Canada. Uh, we see Canadians do that all the time. It's definitely possible. You can still get an H-1B visa if you're subject to that requirement. And you can also fulfill that requirement by commuting from Canada to the United States. And it can be, it can be cumulative and not consecutive. All right. So now on to some users or some listener submitted questions. Um, this one's a pretty straightforward. This one's an easy one. Um, but it's a good question. People, uh, so for us, it's easy. For others, it might not be. It says, my wife has a TN visa to work as a nurse in the United States. I currently have a TD visa. So a TN visa is for the worker, and a TD visa is for a dependent. The D is for dependent. So a spouse and minor children can get that TD visa. And the question is, is can an employer sponsor me for a work permit? So this individual is inside the United States, Canadian here, his wife working on a TN, and he's a TD. Um, and he wants to know, can he have his own employer sponsor him for a, a TN visa if he's here on a TD? Yes. Absolutely. They can. That can happen. Um, and the one thing to consider here is if you are in the United States that you're just in legal status. Uh, if you're in legal status, they can file by mail with U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services to change you right over from a TD to a TN without you having to leave the United States. Or you could depart the United States, come back in, and apply to a port of entry. And I think we're making a couple assumptions here. Number one, we're making the assumption that the spouse is Canadian. We are. <laughs> and they don't, and they don't provide that information, but we will no. assume they're Canadian. Yeah, because in most cases they are. And the other assumption that we're, we're making also is that they, um, you know, have an occupation that falls on the Correct. TN yeah. list of professions. So, um, you know, a couple of assumptions there. If you, you don't have those things, your situation's different, but it sounds to me like this person could do, do just what they want to do. Yeah. Assuming they're Canadian and it's a qualifying profession, then no problem. Mm -hmm. And you have two options, USCIS or at a port of entry. So yes, that can be done. Uh, as long as you fit in those boxes. Yeah, and we've done that many times for people. All the time. Now, this one's a little bit more complicated of a question. Uh, actually, it's a longer question. I don't know if it's more complicated. Um, but this goes back to what 
what Christine was already discussing with the uh, aging out mm-hmm. and the CS, the Child Status Protection Act. Um, so this was saying, that, and I'll go to the question. It says, I currently was going through the process of obtaining my green card. The petitioner is my mother who filed for sponsorship for myself, my spouse, and four children. We filed in 2016, and all my children were under the age of 18 when they filed. We received our interview in 2022. My two oldest children were told they could not attend as they were now ages 31 and 29. So this goes back to exactly the scenario you gave, right? Right. It can take years for these to process, um, and by the time they get to the finish line, they're no long. They no longer qualify because they're over 21. What can I do for these children now? I have paid all of their fees and completed all of their medical. I am currently a green card holder. The 31 year old is married. I understand I can go the route of the I-130, but is there a way to salvage the original application process and not have to file new applications? First of all, I think we need to not refer to 31 and 29 year olds as children. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Those are adults, and they actually are considered sons and daughters. So, for immigration purposes, they're always your children. Yeah, yeah. Come on, they are right. Yeah, of even course. though those children we may not want to call our children anymore, they're still our children, no matter how <laughs> old they get. But yes, for immigration purposes, they differentiate between children and sons and daughters. Yes, and the age for most of these types of cases is going to be 21 years old where they are no longer considered children in the so eyes of the under 21 law. you're a child. Under 21 you can still be considered a child or a dependent on on an application such as this. But once you hit that age of 21 I I, they, I think their chances are over. So But you go to a son or daughter when you hit 21 and no longer you, child. You do. So you're so, not dependent. Correct. You're no longer a dependent. So I think that this um, inquiry had, you know, had the right answer here. They said that they know they can go the route of filing I-130 forms, which is a petition from a a green card holder or or a U.S. citizen for their family members independently. But as they want to make sure that they keep the date, I think they're more concerned about the dates here so that that people can process at the same time. Um, Unfortunately, there is no way to do that. What would have to happen here is once that parent of these um, sons and daughters got their green card, they could petition for them. Well, in this case, it's not a oh, it's child not even an and it's a permanent resident. Right. Oh, so yeah. the answer so here the is, answer is no. Is no, not right the, now. You cannot okay. file those I-130s yet. They can when they become a citizen. Yep. This yeah. individual. So this wait time just became uh, very long because if you are a U.S. permanent resident, you can only file for your spouse or children you cannot file for sons or daughters in other words over 21 they don't qualify uh so but if you become a u.s citizen and this individual if they obtain this green card through their mother they're gonna have to wait five years at the five-year mark they're gonna qualify for citizenship be able to apply for citizenship obtain that and then sponsor these Adult and, children. And that only applies if they live in the United States for the full five years and or most of the, the five years. Yeah. If they decide to stay with their sons and daughters, they're not ever going to become a citizen of the United States. Um, so, And that's a good point. Even though this is for family reunification, it does require some family separation to go through the process. Yeah. 
But we see that a lot, lot. right? Yeah. We we you're the one that as a dual citizen, mm-hmm. you 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 like to make this point all the time. I hear you. I hear you doing it. Is make up your mind. You you're not you're the permanent resident of Canada or the United States. You can't be both. Right. And we see that where this situation applies, where maybe they have a conflict because they got their green card, but someone else in their family didn't. So they don't want to come until they can all come together. Well, if you do that in this situation, you may make it almost impossible to bring those children over if you never become a citizen because you never relocate to the United States. And and some of these wait times for these family-based applications are just absolutely ridiculous. Insane. Um, You know, these people are waiting know 20 years to get to get a visa available even longer sometimes if you're looking at mexico um it's philippines it's very it's very restrictive so it's definitely worth calling a lawyer to to checking this stuff out so i understand why this person was curious to see if there's another way i would i would have the same question if i was them but unfortunately the way the law is right now there isn't another option yeah 31 and 29 no longer child and we just had a case similar to this uh, someone approached us, and the scenario was a U.S. citizen, son. The, the child was born in the United States because the father had worked here at, during his career. Um, and the son had turned 21, which is the age which you need to arrive at to sponsor a, a parent uh, if you are a U.S. citizen, and wanted to sponsor his mother, father, and sister mm-hmm. to come to the United States. Well, those are different categories for immigration purposes. If if you are sponsoring your parents, they are considered immediate relatives and they are able to go through the process immediately. There's The only wait time there is processing of the applications. Whereas a sister is, it falls into a different category and is subject to visa wait times. They had an option. The son could sponsor the parents and the, and the sister separately through I-130 applications. They're all done through separate applications in this instance. But the parents would come and they have to leave behind the minor daughter. She was 18 at the time because uh, the wait time for the daughter would be much longer than the wait time for the parents. You're talking years longer. So the advice that we gave was, have your son file for you and your wife now. Once you become a green card holder, the minor daughter would then qualify to come as your child and dependent uh, as a green card holder. So what did they do? Well, we filed the I-130s for the parents. Those were approved. Once the father got his green card, he immediately filed for his daughter, who luckily for under the Child Status Protection Act. Had, and we're talking, it was a matter of days or months. It was not a very, it was a very short window that we had and luckily made it in that window where she did not age out. So the son sponsored the father who then in turn fo- sponsored his minor daughter and now they all have green cards. So something that could have taken several years uh, was cut down to a matter of, and in this case, you're talking about the two-year time period. That's how long it took because of the wait times to process these cases. And by several years, you mean like? Decade. <laughs> more like 14, 15, 16 years. Yeah, decade so, more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. I just a bit of personal information. I When I got my U.S. citizenship, I had a brother who asked me 
um, you know, if you could move to the States with, you know, and, and live here. And I said, sure, I'll sponsor you. And that I filed that application and the priority date is 2009. Um, he's still waiting. He's, he's very patiently waiting to get out of the cold of Canada. He wants to get to the warm weather. So 2009. How many years is that? He's been waiting now. 14 years, years and he's got a and the priority date right now is 2007 so two more years to wait that or longer because or longer. it doesn't move it doesn't yep. move a year a year so it could be another five years so we were able to to use this strategy for this family to keep them together mm-hmm. um so very valid question and families are torn apart all the time with the immigration, unfortunately, because of these visa limitations and the way they categorize mother, father, brother, sisters, aunts, uncles, people in ages. So you you need to be careful when you're going through that process to see how it might impact you and prepare so that you're taking the the best strategy forward. Okay, a TN visa question. Do you want to read this one? Sure. I'm a computer science major student at the University of Toronto and or at a university in Toronto, pardon me, and I will be graduating this June. My partner has been admitted to a graduate school in Chicago, and so we're planning to relocate there for the coming fall. I'm currently in my last semester and planning to soon start applying for jobs in the U.S., and I want to try to get a TN visa. I think that would make me more competitive and more competitive candidate, since as far as I know, TN visas don't require sponsorship. I know software engineers are a gray area in the TN visa eligibility category, so I want to be sure of the details. I need to know and let my potential employer know so I can cross the border smoothly. There's a lot in that question, actually. There was. It sounds like this person thinks that they can get a TN without any employer input. Is saying that uh, TN doesn't require sponsorship. Right, and saying that they're a more competitive candidate. You've got to have the job first. Yeah, and, <laughs> and when you're applying to jobs, and this is why people, uh, I don't know why they think, but it asks, do you have status to work in the U.S.? You know, are you a U.S. permanent resident or a U.S. citizen, or do you otherwise have a visa? Uh, and I, we hear this a lot where Canadians click visa not required or sponsorship not required mm-hmm. because they think for some reason that a TN doesn't require any employer input. That's not correct. Uh, now, is it traditional sponsorship? When I say traditional sponsorship, if you're familiar with the visa process, when when individuals refer to the traditional sponsorship, they're talking about an H-1B visa, which requires working with the Department of Labor, USCIS, and it's a lengthy and costly process, and employers don't want to be burdened with that and all the fees and, and, and everything that's involved in that petition process. That's what they refer to as sponsorship. Although the TN visa doesn't require that amount of work it does require an employer to say they need you and to support you in the process so i would say you if you don't call it sponsorship well you still need to call it employer support they have to support you in this process by giving a job offer yeah Yeah. you can't get the tn first that's cart before the horse you've got to have the job employed right so you absolutely need an employer. So you can't cut your employer out of this process. Right. Now, what about this part here where they say software engineers are a gray area in the TN visa eligibility criteria? I would say prior to um, the issuance of what is called the Cronin Memo, and that's a was issued in July of 2000. So prior to July 2000, it was a gray area. <laughs> Maybe this is some old information they found. But yeah, software engineers are not a gray area. 
in the well, GN eligibility the- criteria. I understand they're not set out separately on the list like every other profession, but they're identified as a legitimate TN profession. There is nothing gray about them. The requirements for a software engineer are just as clear as they are for any other occupation. And I, you just nailed it. It, I think the confusion is it's not specifically listed software engineer, computer engineer. It just says engineer under the USMCA. So people are like, oh, it's not listed. Well, in the, I'll read you a part of this memo. This is the what is referred to as the Cronin memo. And it says, an individual engaged in business activities as a software engineer at a professional level that requires a back, back bachelor's degree or license may qualify under the profession of engineer under the NAFTA. And that's the now the USMCA, which ad- adopted NAFTA. So it clearly states in there that software engineer follows under the category of engineer. You can get a job offer or have a job title that may not be specifically spelt out on the USMCA profession list. However, your duties and what 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 you perform or ask to perform by your employer falls within one of those professions, even if it is an exact title match. Right. And we say that a lot where your profession may not be specifically listed as far as you know, but what you're doing, your duties, your education and in what what that requires falls in one of those professions. So it's not a, always as clear cut as, oh, my profession isn't listed. Yeah, and we should say that. I, I know in this this uh, question, this individual is trying to stay together with their partner. Um, we do get a lot of calls like that. And, and sometimes people do qualify and sometimes they do not. I had a call just yesterday with um, a young couple, um, very similar situation to this. And in fact, I think they were actually looking at going to Chicago as well. Um, and I, you know, the, the um, one partner had a degree and had an offer and had, you know, a path to a visa, although it was unclear which one that was going to be. Um, he was assured that they had immigration authorities or, or counsel that were going to take care of him, but she didn't have anything. She didn't have a TN occupation. She had a bachelor's degree. Um, but it wasn't in one of the areas that she could get a TN for. So we had, you know, I had to, to talk to them and advise them, you know, about the different ways that she would be able to join her partner. Um, and, you know, it didn't fit in perfectly with her plan for herself, but at least we were able to come up with a plan for her to be there for the two years or whatever it was going to be while he was going to be working there on this contract. So, um, you know, sometimes you might have to make a little bit of a career switch or modify your plans in order to make something like this happen. Yeah, and the other, every time I hear partner, I, I wonder what that means because people <laughs> say partner, it, that applies to many different uh, relationships, relationships yeah. right? What, yeah. what do you mean by partner? Uh, because that can change this too. If, if they're not married, uh, then I think that's what you don't means. even qualify as it. I think it just a, means they don't, they don't have a marriage certificate right now. So they may be. Um, a common law relationship, or they may just be boyfriend and girlfriend. And and then that raises common law, right? Mm-hmm. In Canada, although common law might be accepted, Canadian common law is not accepted in the United States. So that's just another thing to think about here. Um, if you were thinking, maybe I don't qualify for a TN, so I'm just going to come on a TD as a dependent. Well, you need to make sure you have that right uh, relationship in order to qualify for a TD. In this case, you would have to be legally married. There's a lot to unpack with that one, for sure. So in a nutshell, uh, software engineers, computer engineers qualify. 
uh, 14N status under the category of engineer. Uh, definitely possible. And you do need employer input support for a TN visa process. You cannot self-petition. Uh, you can't just show up at the border um, and request uh, a TN as, a, as an engineer in the United States software engineer without an employer uh, supporting you in that. Uh, final question of the day. I'll let Christine read this. Okay, the employers, much. you know, I when I was in, in grade school, I was a pretty good reader, and that used to be my job in the class when the teacher was too uh, preoccupied with something else or just I mean, wanted to take some time off. They would ask me to read to the class, so apparently I'm good at this. The employer's job offer letter is missing the end date. The role doesn't exactly match the list of professions, and the employer is refusing to write a support letter to clarify these details, wondering what my options are. Another one, and I will say you do read the questions way better than I do. So, um, <laughs> at least lots I'm good unpack at in this one. I'm I'm useful in some way around here, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so the employer's job offer letter is missing the end date. So is that a deal breaker? No end date. Not necessarily. Yeah, I no. mean you can frame it in different ways, but if they if it's a permanent position, if it says anything like that, it could be an issue. Yeah, I'd say that's the really the... So the officer just needs to know what the time frame being requested is. So if right. it doesn't have to end it, it has to state a, a duration. Correct, so, yeah. It has to have a duration. doesn't and it can need be to from necessarily one be a date. to three years. And like you said, it can't be permanent. Right. So, so a temporary time period from one to three one day to three years. So if it doesn't have an end date, well, it should have a start date and it should say how long they need you, 12 months, 18 months, whatever it might be. The officer needs to know exact time period for which they're requesting it. Uh, and the role doesn't match, which that, I don't know what that means. Uh, it, the role title, uh, it can mean a lot of different things, doesn't match the list of professions. Again, this could go back to the previous question, software engineer. Well, it's not specifically uh, listed under the USMC profession. Well, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, it doesn't qualify, right? Yeah, and we get plenty of calls from people that are like, oh, well, my, my job doesn't match a TN profession. And, and you know, you ask a few questions and it turns out, it's exactly a TN profession. It's just the title is some weird internal thing that they want to call you. Um, and so it is really a TN, you know, applicable job and you can get a TN for it. We just got to somehow work within the confines of that, that uh, title that they give you internally um, or leave it out altogether, personally. <laughs> and I'm just thinking about the TNs we're working on right now, at least the ones I'm working on right now. Almost every one of them, we have to work through the duties and they have an internal job title that's mm -hmm. on the offer letter, yeah. but it's not the profession they're working under. It's it's just what they're called by HR. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's misleading. Sometimes it, it's not, but you got to be careful with that. And, and plug for our website and, uh, and um, our resources page on there. A lot of these questions are answered on there. Uh, does your job title matter in a TN application and it absolutely does the job title does because it can trigger uh, the officer into going down a certain path if if your job title doesn't match one of the professions it could be a red flag it may not be in the end it comes down to your duties so 
if your role doesn't match, well, do your and me and I'm assuming role means it could mean title, but it also could mean duties. Um, so if you, you have to look at that closely, and do your duties fall within one of those TM professions? If it does, yeah. it could potentially work. Could there are plenty of employers out there that want to hire Canadians to come into the U.S. to do these jobs, and a lot of these employers don't offer sponsorship or any kind of support with respect to the immigration process. If that's what the employer is saying and they refuse to even write a support letter for you, that's not a good job to get a TN under, to be honest. You should start looking for another position. That means this employer isn't willing to go the links it takes to get you there. Um, so it's time to look for a new job with an employer that would be open to that. Yeah, unfortunately, you cannot overcome that. Because no. again, going back to our last question, you can't self-sponsor. So if the employer's not going to write you a letter, I think a lot of employers you know just say, like? here, we're going to give you this job offer. Now go to the border with this. It's yeah. worked for other people before. It has everything you need. But the, our, our possible clients are very savvy. There's a lot of information out there. So they know when they can see a deficiency in a letter. Um, and if they ask for changes and the employer's not open to that, it's time to walk. Yeah. And we, again, back to our website, There's we have a post on there that talks about the difference between an offer letter and what we refer to as a support letter. And and that's what this is here. It's, it's a straightforward offer letter, which doesn't contain the amount of information sufficient uh, to apply for a TN at the border. And if they're not willing to modify that or provide an additional support letter is what we mm -hmm. refer to it, to supplement that offer, offer letter, unfortunately, you're out of luck. Uh, and like you said, find, you, need a, you need to find another employer or help them understand the simplicity of the process and sometimes we get we can intervene and i did that True. recently um just had someone retain this week where the employer didn't understand uh the process we were able to walk the employer through the process and that hey this is all gonna align with the job you've offered them mm -hmm. however we just need these details in this letter in order for them to get the visa you don't need to do anything we'll do all the work for you we'll draft the letter It'll have all the necessary components. We'll provide it to you. You just sign off on it, give it to them, and then they'll apply for the visa on their own. Yep. And some employers are open to that. We'll even make changes. Sometimes they come back and say, oh, we don't like the language here. We don't like the language there. They're very in tune with what could be con construed as contractual language. So we'll we'll make those edits so that the employer is comfortable signing off on it. Um, and in most cases, it works out. Uh, but if your employer won't even you know go to that uh, level where they want to get an understanding of what you need that's probably not a good TN option for you. Thank you for tuning in today to the Arrive podcast. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the conversation and learned something. I think I learn as we discuss and talk through things uh, sometimes. Uh, and the questions are always appreciated. Thank you for submitting questions. If, if you have a question you'd like us to answer during the podcast, please submit it. Um, so that we can address it uh, on a future podcast episode. Uh, if you haven't already, please subscribe uh, to our podcast uh, wherever you listen to your, your favorite podcasts. And tune in next time.